7, please. John chapter 7, and if you're a guest with us, we've been in walking through the book of John Sunday mornings at 11 o'clock, and we've found ourselves here uh, this week, beginning in John chapter 7. Our text this morning is going to be verses 1 through 13. John chapter 7, verses 1 through 13, you follow along as I read this morning, as we dig into God's Word and ask the Lord that He would use His Word to accomplish His will in our hearts today. Beginning in verse 1, After these things Jesus walked in Galilee, for He would not walk in Jewry, because the Jews sought to kill Him. Now the Jews' feast of tabernacles was at hand. His brethren therefore said unto Him, Depart hence and go into Judea, that thy disciples also may see the works that thou doest. For there is no man that doeth anything in secret, and he himself seeketh to be known openly. If thou do these things, show thyself to the world. For neither did his brethren believe in him. Then Jesus said unto them, My time is not yet come, but your time is always ready. The world cannot hate you, but me it hateth, because I testify of it, that the works thereof are evil. Go ye up unto this feast, I go not up yet unto this feast, for my time is not yet full come. When he had said these words unto them, he abode still in Galilee. But when his brethren were gone up, then went he also up unto the feast, not openly, but as it were in secret. Then the Jews sought him at the feast and said, Where is he? And there was much murmuring among the people concerning him. For some said, He is a good man. Others said, Nay, but he deceiveth the people. Howbeit, no man spake openly of him for fear of the Jews. This morning I'm going to speak to you on this subject, Who is Jesus Christ? Who is Jesus Christ? Let's pray and then we'll begin. Father, I pray that you would use your word in our lives today. And Father, I can't see into the heart of anybody. But Lord, you see exactly what's going on. You see what people are thinking. Lord, you see the condition of their heart as well. Lord, we trust that you'll accomplish your purpose with the Word of God here today, that this is a divine appointment, that this is a message for every ear and every heart. And Lord, I pray that you'd use it to magnify yourself. In Jesus' name, amen. There was once a study or a survey that was done by a pastor in a church in Philadelphia. And he went out on the streets of Philadelphia and he asked people, who is Jesus Christ? Sometimes he asked it this way, do you think that Jesus Christ is? is God. The answers that he received revealed a lot of confusion uh, that, that many have regarding this very crucial, and listen, even eternity-affecting question. This question is a crucial question, and it's an eternity-affecting question. Who is Jesus Christ? Some of the responses that he got were this. One woman replied, Jesus Christ was a man who thought that he was God. Another young woman, a biology student, replied, Jesus Christ is pure essence of energy. God to me is energy, electric energy, because it's something that's not known. A man answered this, I think that's something that you have to decide for yourself. But he did have some beautiful ideas. Others replied, he's an individual who lived 2,000 years ago who wanted the betterment of all classes of people. He was well-liked, he meant well, he was a good man, etc., etc. But most people were just confused. Most answered this, I haven't any idea, I don't know. 
The answer to the question of who is Jesus Christ is a question that needs to be asked today that needs to be answered by each one in this room. The sad truth is that no matter where you go in America, you're going to get these same kinds of answers that I've just described to you. And it's a sad thing that in a country like ours, where anybody can easily hear about Jesus Christ, that there could be so many who don't know who He is. Someone might say, well, why is that such a big deal, Pastor? Well, it's a big deal for a couple of reasons. Number one, if a person doesn't have a correct knowledge of who Jesus is, then he cannot trust Him as Savior and Lord. Many believe in a Jesus of their own imagination because they don't have a right understanding of who He is. A correct knowledge of who Jesus Christ is must underlie saving faith in Him. And so... If you'll recall, those of you who've been here with us, the whole purpose of the Gospel of John was to identify and highlight the deity of Jesus Christ, exactly who He is. And John continues to labor uh, to make it clear in his Gospel, this crucial question that every person needs to answer correctly. Who is Jesus Christ? Listen, friends, you and I need to get it right. It's also important For those who've already been born again, those of you who already believe in Jesus Christ as your Savior, this is also an important question. Because just as in human relationships, there's always room to grow to know somebody more deeply and more intimately. So it is in our relationship with Jesus Christ. The Apostle Paul, one of, uh, one of the, the greatest men that, that, we, that the world has ever known, especially evangelism, probably the greatest missionary evangelist the world has ever known, even after 25 years of, of being saved, the Apostle Paul said that his goal, his aim in Philippians 3.10 was that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and his sufferings. He wanted to know Jesus Christ to the fullest degree. And listen, here's the principle or the point that I'm trying to make. Even for those of you who are saved, the more deeply that you know Jesus Christ for who He is, the more quickly we will submit to Him as Lord of every thought, of every word, and every deed because of who He is. And here's another part of it. The more deeply we know Him, the more readily we will trust Him In all matters of daily life, even when the road is getting really rough, because I know my Savior, I know I can trust Him. John chapter 7, John chapter 8, they relate some incidents of what verse 2 calls the Feast of Tabernacles. Verse 2 said the Jews' Feast of Tabernacles was at hand. And John 7 and John 8 relate a lot of, of events that happened around this Feast of Tabernacles in Jerusalem. And these are events that we'll cover in the next two chapters. And what they show us is the mounting opposition to Jesus Christ and His ministry. What we don't know in this text, or if you'll study this out, you'll find is that it's only about six months after this feast that Jesus will be crucified. But I want you to notice some phrases with me this morning that help set the picture for us, all right? And we'll get into the thoughts of the message here in just a little bit. But notice some phrases that help set the picture for us. Notice verse 1, the Bible says, after these 
things. That phrase, after these things, refers back to all of the events of chapter 6. What we covered in chapter 6 was that Jesus fed the 5,000 plus the women and children. Jesus walked on the sea, uh, performed another miracle. Uh, Jesus gives the bread of life discourse in John chapter 6. And so the phrase, after these things, refers back to chapter 6, but it also reflects a gap of about six months of time. Because in chapter 6 and verse 4, we find that the, the Passover was near. In John chapter 6 and verse 4, and the Passover, a feast of the Jews, was nigh. Well, when we get to chapter 7, it says the Feast of Tabernacles was at hand. And so there's been a period of about six months here between John chapter 6 and John chapter 7. And so the phrase after these things, really fills in some time gap here. But notice also in verse 1 that the Bible says that Jesus walked in Galilee. Now up to this point, a lot of Jesus' ministry had been in Judea. He had done many miracles there, but He was not received. He was not believed. And many people wanted Him, but they wanted Him for the physical benefits that they would get. They wanted Him to be their deliverer from the Roman oppression. What they didn't want was, was Him as their Savior, deliverance for their soul. And so Jesus had performed many miracles in, the, in, in that region, and now the Bible says He walked in Galilee. Why? For He would not walk in Jewry, because the Jews sought to kill him. Now notice that phrase, he would not walk in Jewry. It basically means that Jesus was done openly showing himself for who he was. He wasn't going to openly show himself there anymore. These people had ample opportunity to believe in him, and yet they rejected him. And so their time had passed, and he wouldn't openly work among them anymore. There's a great application here, friends. There comes a point in time where God will stop speaking to the rejecting heart. He's full of mercy, and His mercy endures forever, the Bible says, but the heart that continually rejects Him will eventually see its last chance. When will that be? Well, only God knows. But I would say to you this morning, if that is you, if you've had opportunity to know Jesus Christ and you have rejected Him, don't play games with God or your eternal soul. Now notice verse 2. Now the Jews' feast of tabernacles was at hand. What we need to understand here to help paint this picture is that there were three great Jewish feasts in Jerusalem that every male was expected to attend. It was the Passover in the spring. It was Pentecost, which was 50 days after Passover. And then also the Feast of Tabernacles in the fall. You can read about it in Leviticus chapter 23. We don't have the time to go and, and flesh all of that out. But the Passover pictures the Lord's death for our sins as our Passover lamb. Pentecost foreshadowed the outpouring of the Holy Spirit of God. Acts chapter 2 reveals that. The Feast of Tabernacles pictures Christ's coming again to joyously gather the harvest of His people and to dwell permanently with them. That's what it represented. I did some study on that and I found 
this to be interesting. The Feast of Tabernacles had a double purpose. To remember Israel's time in the wilderness when they lived in tents. And to rejoice before the Lord after harvest, in particular the grape, olive, and fruit harvests. It also involved looking forward to a new exodus, the time when the kingdom of God would be brought in with all of its blessings. This was also the most joyful of the three feasts that every male was to attend. In Jesus' time, it included pouring out water as a remembrance of the water from the rock that sustained Israel in the wilderness and a candle-lighting ceremony that commemorated God's presence with Israel through the pillar of cloud and fire. What's interesting is when you study out John 7 and John chapter 8, Jesus plays off of both of these ceremonies. When he invites people who are thirsty to come and drink of the living water in John 7, 37, and in John chapter 8, he proclaims himself to be the light of the world. All of these pictured or represented Jesus Christ. And this is the picture that is set before us here. The Feast of Tabernacles was at hand. His brethren said, hey, let's go up to the feast because every male is supposed to attend this feast. But Jesus says, I'm not going to go up yet. You go because my time is not yet come. And we'll cover that in just a little bit. But before we get into the rest of the message, I want to make this note or this comment. On one level, John chapter 7 and the verses we're covering here, they function to set the stage for the rest of chapter 7 and chapter 8 with all the events that take place at this feast. But it also reveals to us some wrong views about Jesus that the Jewish people, including his own brothers, had about him. And if we carefully study this out, what we actually find is that this passage reveals that Jesus is both Messiah and Lord, which fits perfectly into the purpose for which John wrote this gospel, to demonstrate the deity of Jesus Christ. He's the Son of God. And John wrote his gospel so that people might believe that he is the Son of God, so that they might have eternal life through His name. That's what He said in John 20, verse 31. These are written that ye might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing ye might have life through His name. So the main point and the main thought of the message is this. Believing in Jesus Christ for salvation depends on having a right view about who He is. Thus the title, Who is Jesus Christ? The focus of the message this morning is going to be on the wrong views about Jesus as we ask that question, who is Jesus Christ? I want you to follow along with me again as I read through this passage. And I want you to note in here and see if you can pick it out, though wrong views about Jesus Christ and the characters involved. Verse 1, after these things, Jesus walked in Galilee, for he would not walk in Jewry because the Jews sought to kill him. Now the Jews' feast of tabernacles was at hand. His brethren therefore said unto him, Depart hence and go into Judea, that thy disciples also may see the works that thou doest. 
For there is no man that doeth anything in secret, and he himself seeketh to be known openly. If thou do these things, show thyself to the world. For neither did his brethren believe in him. Then Jesus said unto them, My time is not yet come, but your time is always ready. The world cannot hate you, but me it hateth, because I testify of it that the works thereof are evil. Go ye up to this feast. I go not up yet unto this feast, for my time is not yet full come. When he had said these words unto them, he abode still in Galilee. But when his brethren were gone up, then went he also up unto the feast, not openly, but as it were in secret. Then the Jews sought him at the feast and said, Where is he? And there was much murmuring among the people concerning him. For some said, He is a good man. Others said, Nay, but he deceiveth the people. Howbeit no man spake openly of him for fear of the Jews." There were many who had a wrong view about Jesus Christ. And I find that there are three groups that are pictured here, all of which, to one degree or another, have a wrong view about Jesus. His brothers, first of all, the Jewish leaders, secondly, and then thirdly, the multitude at the feast. And we'll cover all of these. Consider, first of all, that Jesus' brothers had a wrong view of Jesus Christ, and their view was a worldly, unbelieving view of Him. In verse 3, the Bible tells us that His brethren said, let's go up to the feast. And you know here that they said to Him, "Thy so you're, I want you, they, let's just read it, verse 3, His brethren therefore said unto Him, Depart hence and go into Judea, that thy disciples also may see the works that thou doest. And here, they kind of, they kind of, they kind of double dare Him. They said, nobody that does these kinds of things wants to stay secret. They want to be known openly. And so they said, if you really do these things, and if these are really real, then why don't you show yourself to the world? And then verse 5 says, neither did his brethren believe in him. His brothers had a worldly, unbelieving view of him. Now, let's make this clear. The reference to Jesus' brethren in verse 3 refers to his half-brothers, the other sons that Mary and Joseph had after the birth of Jesus Christ. Luke 2 and verse 7 tells us that Mary brought forth her firstborn son. Mark chapter 3 and verse 31 says, there, Then there came his brethren and his mother, and standing without, sent unto him, calling him. And the multitude sat about him, and they said unto him, Behold, thy mother and thy brethren without seek for thee. Now I'm making this point on purpose, because contrary to what the Catholic Church believes and teaches, Mary was not a perpetual virgin. The biblical evidence is very clear. These brethren in our text were Jesus' half-brothers, born to Joseph and Mary after Jesus' birth. Now, at this point, they were unbelieving. But we know that at least two of Jesus' brothers, James and Jude, later on came to believe in Jesus Christ. Jesus appeared to James after his resurrection in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. James later becomes the pastor of the church in Jerusalem. He also wrote the epistle of James. Jude humbly referred to himself as the bondservant or bondslave of Jesus Christ and the brother of James, identifying him as the Lord's half-brother. He also wrote the epistle of Jude. 
But now I want you to note verses 3 and 4. Because in verses 3 and 4, Jesus' brothers offer him some unsolicited career advice. They said to him, we want the, you want your disciples to see the works that you do. And then in verse 4, For there is no man that doeth anything in secret. He himself seeketh to be known openly. If thou do these things, show thyself to the world. Now, I want you to note the undertone of the brothers. They're saying basically this. If these works of yours are genuine miracles... Why do you confine yourself to villages and small country towns in Galilee? The illiterate and the unsophisticated people live there. Why not go up to the capital where the people are better qualified to judge what you are or who you are? Go up to the feast. Display your power there. Work some miracles there. And if it stands up to the public scrutiny of the leaders, then you're going to have the whole world following after you. John explains why they said that, because verse 5 says that his brethren didn't believe in who he was either. Now let me make this application. We can't say for sure what the motives were behind the brothers' comments here, but it sure seems that they were seeking to benefit in some way from what they were wanting Jesus to do. They said, go up to Jerusalem, do a few more of those spectacular miracles, and you're going to have it made. You're going to have people following you. But maybe, in their mind, since he was their brother, if he was going to be famous, then they would somehow get some recognition too as being part of the group, as being in with Jesus. Their advice was nothing more than worldly-wise publicity and marketing strategies. And it was based on a misunderstanding of Jesus' divine origin and His mission on earth. But you know what? There are plenty of people today who try to build their ministries and their churches off of Jesus, too. Through their worldly methods of publicity, their marketing, their branding of their name, they're seeking personal recognition and gain. Just this last week, I was out on a fishing charter out of Seward, and I met this uh, husband and wife, this guy and his wife, and, and uh, he's, he's got several businesses. He's obviously got a lot of money. He lives up here part-time. He lives down in the States the other part of the time. And we got to talking, and, and he was a, a Christian man. And I, I, after listening to him talk, there, there was really no reason to doubt whether or not he was truly saved. He probably was. We had really good conversation because we were going two, two and a half hours out. And so we sat in the boat as the boats going along talking. We got to talking about churches and we got talking about ministries and so on. And he understood that I was a pastor and, and this and that. But we got to talking about churches in the thousands. And he comes from some of those churches. Thousands and thousands of members with multiple services on a Sunday. And he said this to me. He said, because we were talking about 
the, the branding and the marketing and, and the, the, the focus today uh, on ministry and even the focus on, quote, Christianity, about getting the numbers and about getting the crowds and bringing them in and all that kind of stuff so you can minister to the people. And he said this. He said, I wonder how many would actually come if it was just Bible. I said to him, about 60 or 70. And it hit him. And he thought about that for a minute. Because he understood that the size of our church is about 60 or 70. After the end of the day, we got back to the dock. And it's been a 12-hour day, almost. He came up to me and he said, I appreciate the direction that you're going in just following the Bible. He said, I know it's not popular, but it's true. Amen. There's a lot of people who try to gain personal accolades and recognition off of Jesus Christ. But it's because they have the wrong view of who He is. That He's Lord. He's Master. I'm His servant. Jesus replied to his brothers in verse 6. Look at this. Then Jesus said unto them, My time is not yet come, but your time is always ready. The world cannot hate you, but me it hateth, because I testify of it that the works thereof are evil. And then he tells them to go up to the feast, that he's not going to go yet, because his time is not yet full come. And when he said these words, he abode still in Galilee. And his brethren went up to the feast, verse 10 says, But then Jesus went up to the feast, not openly, but as it were, in secret. Now Jesus replied to his brothers in verse 6. He said, My time is not yet come, but your time is always ready. Verse 7, I'll comment on verse 7 in just a little bit where Jesus mentions the world's hatred of him. But then look what he tells his brothers in verse 8. He says, go up to the feast. I go not up yet unto this feast, for my time is not yet full come. So we find that he stays in Galilee, but after his brothers left for the feast, Jesus went up, not publicly, but as it were, in secret. Now note first that Jesus obviously was not lying to his brothers. Some people think that. But Jesus said, I go not up yet to the feast, rather than I go not at all. But notice he says, for my time is not yet full come. He says, I'm not going with you because it's not the Father's time for me to go and openly show myself for who I am. Remember, that's what the brothers wanted. They said, show yourself to the world. But he said, it's not my father's time for me to go and openly show myself for who I am. You can go anytime, but I need to go in the time and in the manner that the father directs me to go. Now, number one, it shows Jesus' resolve to do only his father's will. But don't miss this sobering truth. It shows us that it is absolutely possible to be in close proximity to Jesus to know Him as few others do, and yet still be unbelieving and lost. That's what His brothers were in this moment. 
They were close to him. They had access to him, and yet they still didn't believe who he was. Jesus' brothers had grown up with him. Man, can you imagine that? I can't imagine what it would have been like to have a sinless sibling. I wonder if they sensed that Jesus was different than them. They probably resented him on some level because of his sinless life. Here they are getting in trouble, but Jesus is never getting in trouble. I wonder if his life convicted them of their own life. They had undoubtedly heard his teachings as well. They knew that he could perform miracles. They saw them, but they still didn't believe who he was. Now, here's the application, and pay attention to this. Pay attention to this. You can grow up in a Christian home. You can go to church every single week. You can do Bible studies. You can know a lot about Jesus, but you can still not personally believe in him as your Savior and Lord. His brothers had the wrong view of Jesus Christ. And I wonder if there are people even in this room this morning You have access to Jesus Christ. You know things about Him. The Spirit of God has convicted you of your need, and yet you sit here lost. You know Jesus like few others do because of your upbringing, and yet you're still lost. You've got a wrong view of who Jesus is. Because if you had a right view of who Jesus was, you would fall on your knees before Him, begging Him for His mercy and His grace in your life. Every knee will bow, and every tongue will confess that He is Lord. You better do it while you have the chance, before you're forced to. His brothers had the wrong view, a worldly view. But then notice verse 11, we see the Jewish leaders. They had a hostile view of Jesus Christ. Then the Jews sought Him, at the feast and said, where is he? Now you say, why is that a hostile view? Well, you have to understand the context. Go back to verse 1. After these things, Jesus walked in Galilee, for he would not walk in Jewry because the Jews sought to kill him. Look at verse 19. Verse 19 says, Did not Moses give you the law, and yet none of you keepeth the law? Why go ye about to kill me? Here's, here's the motive of their heart. And when it says the Jews, it's referring to the Jewish religious leaders. They were seeking Jesus, but they weren't seeking him so they can learn from him and believe in him. They were seeking him so they could kill him. Jesus threatened their power. They used that power to control the people through fear. Verse 13 says nobody openly talked about Jesus for fear of the Jews. Jesus didn't fit their idea of a political Messiah who would play their political games and reward them with nice positions in his kingdom and so on. When Jesus upset the money changers' tables in the temple back in chapter 2, he threatened their livelihood, their income. And so they didn't carefully listen to Jesus' teachings or think rationally about the amazing miracles that he did, often the Jews looked right past the miracle just to try to accuse him of something. Rather, they reacted emotionally because Jesus threatened their comfortable way of life. Well, here's the application. 
There are many today who do not believe in Jesus Christ because they react emotionally rather than rationally. And here's how. They're confronted with their sin. They're confronted with their need of salvation. And they sense that to come to Christ would mean that things would have to change in their life. And it would end their plans. And it would end the fact that they get to control their life. They like the comfortable lives they live. They love their sin. They love their darkness rather than light. They don't want to face the truth that they're rebels against a holy God who deserve His righteous judgment. They want to live the life that they've made for themselves. Do you remember the rich young ruler in Matthew chapter 19? He came to Jesus and he said, what, what, what do I need to do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said, knowing his heart, keep all the commandments. He said, I've kept them all. And Jesus said, there's one thing you're lacking. Go and sell all that you have and give to the poor and follow me. And the Bible says that he went away sorrowful because he had great possessions. And Jesus talks about the things that control us in our life. The real issue with that young man wasn't the fact that he was rich. The real issue was the fact that he wasn't willing to give up control of his life and follow Christ. There's a lot of people like that. They have the wrong view of Jesus Christ because he upsets their way of living in their life. And they're not willing to give it up. But thirdly, we find in verse 12 that the multitude had an inadequate or mixed view of Jesus. Verse 12 says there was much murmuring among the people concerning him. For some said, he is a good man. Others said, nay, but he deceiveth the people. Now that word murmuring, it means quietly debating among themselves. So verse 12 says there was all of this quiet debating going on among the people concerning him. Some said he's a good man. Others said he deceives the people. And it makes sense that they would be quietly debating because verse 13 says, No man spake openly of him for fear of the Jews. Big brother or the NSA is listening, so we can't speak openly about Jesus here. The multitudes were divided into two camps. Did you notice that? Some said he was a good man. Others said he deceives the people. They were divided into two camps, but both of those camps were wrong. Some said he's a good man. Well, that's true. Jesus was a good man as far as that went, but it doesn't go anywhere near it should. As John's gospel demonstrates, Jesus Christ is the Son of God. He's the Christ. He's Lord. He's God. He's more than just a good man. One author points out that if Jesus was not God in human flesh, his claims would have meant that he was not a good man at all, but a self-centered man. 
He was always talking about himself and telling people that they should believe in him as the way of eternal life. He claimed that the Old Testament was written about him. He claimed to be the bread of life who could satisfy the hunger of every soul that would come to him. He claimed that whosoever believes in him would have rivers of living water flowing out of him. He claimed to be the light of the world. He claimed that before Abraham was born, he existed No good man who was not God in human flesh could say these things without being considered a deluded megalomaniac. He was more than a good man. Yes, he was a good man. But if he wasn't God in the flesh, he's definitely not a good man. The other camp thought that Jesus was leading people astray. He was deceiving the people. They were the traditionalists who thought that the ways of the fathers were good enough. But if Jesus was a deceiver, he was a really good one. Because he got a lot of people who were fiercely monotheistic Jews to believe his claims to be God, to the extent that many of them eventually suffered persecution and even martyrdom because of their belief in him. And so both camps were an error. Both errors would result in people still believing or still being under God's judgment and wrath because neither camp believed that Jesus was the Savior, the Christ, Lord. But why did these Jewish people who had the Scriptures, who heard Jesus' claims, who saw His miracles, why did they still not believe? Well, I want you to notice as we close up here this morning, the cause for wrong views about Jesus Christ. John gives us two reasons why these Jews at the feast did not believe. Notice verse 7. Jesus said, The world cannot hate you, but me it hateth, because I testify of it that the works thereof are evil. First, they hated Jesus because he confronted them with their sin. Jesus tells his brothers, the world can't hate you, but it hates me because I testify that its deeds are evil. Now look at chapter 3 and verse 20. John chapter 3 and verse 20. The Bible says, For everyone that doeth evil hateth the light, neither cometh to the light, lest his deeds should be reproved. Those that don't come to the light, they hate the light, and they won't come to the light because it exposes them for who they are. The world hated Jesus. These Jews hated Jesus because he confronted them with their sin. To come to Jesus Christ means you have to let him confront you about your sin. You've got to agree with God about the darkness of your own heart. That your life of sin is an offense to a holy and a righteous God. That's what you've got to do when you come to Jesus Christ. You've got to agree with Him about who you are. This is why people won't come to the Lord. Also implicit in Jesus' words is the truth that if you follow Him, the world's going to hate you. Because of your holy life. 
You know what? You're not going to be the most popular person at the office. You're not going to be the most popular person at school if you don't join in with the world's sinful ways. In fact, the world's going to hate you. Jesus said it hated me first. And if you're going to follow me, don't be surprised when the world hates you. Isn't it interesting when you simply stand for the truth? Even as a preacher, you just simply preach the Bible. You simply stand for the truth. And all of the, quote, Christian religions are the ones who are coming after you. Why? Because the truth confronts people with their sin. James, one of Jesus' brothers who later on believed, he draws the line in James 4 and verse 4. Turn over there with me, please. James 4, 4 says, Ye adulterers and adulteresses, know ye not that the friendship of the world is enmity with God? Whosoever, therefore, will be a friend of the world is the enemy of God. You know what, friend? You've got to choose which side you're on. You can't be both. If you're going to be a friend of the world, you're going to be an enemy of God. Why did these people have a wrong view of Jesus Christ? Well, first of all, because he confronted them with their sin. But secondly, because they feared the religious leaders who would put them out of the synagogue if they believed. Go back to our text in John 7 and look at verse 13. Verse 13 says that they, nobody spake openly about him for fear of the Jews. If you turn over to John chapter 9, in John 9, you, in the context, you see the man that was born blind from his birth and so on, and how the religious leaders confronted the parents and all of that. And then they came back and confronted him again. But in verse 22, the Bible says these words spake his parents because they feared the Jews. For the Jews had agreed already that if any man did confess that he was Christ, he should be put out of the synagogue. They had a fear of man and not a fear of God. And so coupled with wanting to blend in with the world is the fear of what people will think if you follow after Christ. It was the fear of the Jewish leaders that kept many in the multitude from openly believing on Jesus Christ. But I wonder how true that is for many today. Fear of what people will think. A desire to blend in with the world. If you want to cover your sin and blend in with the world, friend, you're not a true believer in Jesus Christ. You got a wrong view of him. The only correct view of Jesus Christ is that he is both Messiah and Lord. Now, we see that in this passage. It's not stated directly in our text, but it certainly comes through pretty clearly. Now, I want you to go back to John 7. First of all, we see that Jesus is the Messiah, the chosen of God. How do we see that? Well, we see that in Jesus' statements that he wasn't about doing his own thing. Jesus said in verse 6, my time is not yet come. And then he says in verse 8, for my time is not yet full come. Now, he's not referring to the time of the cross. Usually Jesus said, mine hour is not yet come. He's talking about 
being submitted to and surrendered to the will of the Father. We see this by the fact that he did not do his own thing. Rather, he lived in obedience to the Father's plan. If Jesus had chosen to do so, he could have become popular. He could have been the political Messiah that the people wanted. They wanted to make him their king earlier in this chapter. After he fed the 5,000, the people were like, Whoa, look at all the food we've got. Look what he can do for us. And they wanted to make him king. They weren't concerned about their soul. They were concerned about the physical benefits they could get. That he would be the Messiah who would deliver them from Roman oppression. They wanted to make him something that would benefit them physically. He could have become the political Messiah. He could have gone up to Jerusalem, much like the political candidates do today. He could have worked out a few backroom compromises. He could have given some special political favors. He would have been swept into office as this great one in the community. But Jesus was not operating on his own timetable. He was operating on God's timetable, which ultimately would lead to the cross. He knew that he had come to this earth to die for our sins, but at the proper time. Not in response to his brother's worldly advice, but in accordance with the will of God. He came to lay down his life in obedience to the Father's will. It proves and shows us Jesus is the chosen of God. But secondly, we see that Jesus is Lord, that he's God. How do we see that? Well, verse 7 says, The world cannot hate you, but me it hateth. Why? Because I testify of it, that the works thereof are evil. Jesus testified to the world that its deeds are evil. You say, well, how does that prove that he's the Lord? There's lots of prophets and lots of people that said the world's deeds were evil. True, that's true. Many of God's prophets down through the centuries had done this very thing. But those prophets of God always identified themselves with the sins that they preached against. Their message was always, we have sinned against the Lord. Isaiah said, I'm a sinful man when he was in the presence of the Lord. But Jesus came as the light of the world, shining in the darkness. He could ask the question of John 8 and verse 46, Which of you convinceth me of sin? As Peter testified in, 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 in chapter 6 and verse 69, that Jesus is the Holy One of God. Jesus rightly could call on people to follow Him with the promise that He could give them eternal life. Why? Because He's Lord. He's God. There was a reason why people responded to Him as they did in chapter 7 and verse 46. We'll get to this in the next couple of weeks, but the Jewish leader sent people to arrest Jesus, and they went to do it. But then they came back without him. And then the officers, in verse 45, then came the officers to the chief priests and Pharisees, and they said unto him, Why have ye not brought him? The officers answered, Never man spake like this man. <laughs> That's why. Jesus is Lord. He is God in human flesh. 
And here's the whole point. To be saved, you need to believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Savior, that He's God. He's the eternal Son of God, and He's the only one who can wash away your sin. To sum it up, and I'll close with this, just a few important applications that we can take away from these verses. Number one, if you grew up in church, you've been familiar with Christianity all your life, don't be fooled into thinking that you're saved simply by the familiarity you have with Jesus Christ. If Jesus' own brothers were not saved and they had that connection with Him, it shows that not one is saved simply by being familiar with Him alone. You need to have a personal relationship with Him as your Savior from your sin. The one who bore the penalty that you deserve. Secondly, if you've believed in Jesus Christ, you must still let Him confront you with your sin and forsake it and walk in the light. Through God's Word, Jesus tells us how we ought to think, how we ought to speak, how we ought to act in a godly way. And if we are not, not letting, listen, if we're being stubborn and not letting the Word of God confront us with our sin in our life, we are not walking with Jesus Christ. Lots of saved people do that in our rebellion. We see the mirror of God's Word. It shows us what manner of men we are, but we don't want to admit it and we don't want to deal with it. Finally, if you believe in Jesus Christ as your Savior, you're going to be at war with the world. You're either going to be a friend of the world or you're going to be an enemy of God or you're going to be a friend of God and an enemy of the world. You can't be both. 1 John 2.15 Love not the world, neither the things that are in the world. If any man love the world, the love of the Father is not in him. Who is Jesus Christ? Is He your Lord and Savior? How do you view Him? It's a question that needs to be answered because it's an eternal question that will determine where you spend eternity. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, use your word to accomplish your purpose today. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's all stand to our feet, please.